If you have a Bible nearby, there should be some in the pews. Let me ask you to open with, if you will, to the book of Acts. Today we'll be considering Acts 22, verses 20, verse 22 through chapter 23, verse 11. If the Bible is maybe an unfamiliar book to you, the book of Acts is somewhat near the end. And Acts itself recounts the story of what happened as the message about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus began to spread throughout the known world. The impact that it had, both positive and, well, I guess it's all positive, but at times it felt very negative as that word spread. Today we consider a scene in Acts chapter 22, verse 22, and I want to tell you up front that it's it's our habit as a church, it's been our habit since our inception, to preach through sections of Scripture, books of the Bible, in, in complete thought. There are times when we take breaks from that, but our general habit is to do that. When we come to a passage today, um, like Acts 22 and the beginning part of Acts 23, I I tell you that to say, I didn't pick this. And I didn't pick to talk about politics simply because of the nature of where we are in, in the life of this country, but it's simply where God's Word has us this morning, and so we pray for God's blessing on it. In this particular section of Acts 22, if you've been with us the last few weeks, you'll know that Paul was making his way to Jerusalem, the, the center of life for God's people, the, the place where the church had begun because it's where Jesus was crucified and came back to life. But some years after that, Paul was making, a, Paul a convert from Judaism, was making his way to Jerusalem. And as he was there, the first thing he did was he met with the elders of the church, the leaders of the church, those who had been a part of the church the longest. They conferred and they gave him some counsel as to how to carry himself. He had been out of Jerusalem for some time. The next, within the next few days, he had made his way to the temple, and some Jews from Ephesus, the city that he had been about six months prior, saw him in the temple, and they stirred things up. They began to accuse him publicly, directly accuse him of preaching against God's people, of preaching against God's law, of preaching against the temple, of defiling the holy ground on which he stood. The scene escalated quickly, so much so that the soldiers, the Roman soldiers stationed there, knew that they had to do something because it was about to get violent. And so as they were taking Paul away to the place of their barracks, to the place of safety, he asked for a moment to address the crowd, to address them even in their own language. And as he did so, as we saw last week, he recounted growing up in a solid, with a solid Jewish upbringing, of having gone to the best of schools, having been the most faithful Jew possible. But then he also recounted how Jesus had entered his life and changed things for him and sent him to preach to the non-Jews. And it's as he's speaking about his mission to go to the non-Jews to bring them into the kingdom of God by the power of God's Spirit, the crowd got irate. And that's where we pick up the story. And I'm going to read for us the entirety of Acts 22, beginning in verse 22, all the way through chapter 23, verse 11. Hear now the word of God. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out what they were shouting against him like, why they were shouting against him like this. But when they'd stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought my citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, But I am a citizen by birth. 
So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God's going, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, You shall not speak evil of the ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one part of the were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection that the dead of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit. But the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded that the soldiers go down and take him away from, from among them that by force and bring him into the barricades, into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. The grass withers, the flower fades but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Search us, O God, we ask, and know our hearts. Test us and know even our anxious thoughts. Father, point point out now anything in, in us that offends you and lead us along the path of everlasting life. We pray this in the name of Jesus and for His sake. Amen. In 140 characters or less, how would you describe your attitude toward this election season? Where are you? Where's your heart? Where's your mind? Where are your thoughts? Where are your worries these days? This past week, this came across my Twitter feed in less than 140 characters. And I've removed the names just to keep it interesting for us. But the reflection was this, blank lost, Blank is the greatest threat in decades, time to work together for the common good. In other words, my candidate has already lost, he's already out, the other, and the other party's candidate is the greatest threat to this country that we've seen in decades. This is certainly an attitude that any number of names could be filled into any number of these blanks. Words like threat, crisis, and danger often come up in discussions especially what we see online, especially what we see in public forums like the news and talk shows. Many voters already are left at a loss for what to do next. They feel stuck. Surely, we say, I can't vote in good conscience, vote for either of the two major party options. What am I to do? We feel stuck. Many of you maybe even feel the weight of that even now because you take take your right and privilege to vote in this country seriously and you're not sure how to proceed. 
because none of the options feel like good options for many of us. But it's the second part of this tweet that caught my attention. It's time to work together for the common good. Now, the particular slant of that was, we're going to work together for, what's, for the good of based on who's left. We have to acknowledge, when we hear someone say, it's time to work together for the common good, it's a loaded statement. What is the common good? Whose good is it? Is it my good? Is it your good? What does our good look like? How do we work together to achieve it? Now, let's be honest. As long as people in this world have been writing things down on things, something that resembled paper, we've been asking these questions. Volumes upon volumes, whole libraries have been filled with the question of what is the common good and how do we pursue it? We've been asking this question since the dawn of time. And I want to tell you, these questions are important for us to ask. It's important for us to consider what do we do next as believers, as God's people living in the country that God has placed us. They're vital for us. I'm going to tell you right away, I'm not going to tell you how to vote or even that you should vote. That's not my calling this morning. What I want us to see is the bigger picture, though, this morning as we consider these words from Acts 22 and Acts 23. Because what I see in the verses is some, some indication of how we are to respond as God's people. Now, the trajectory that we're going on this morning is to ask that question, so what do we do? Well, based on what happens in Paul's life, what's the connection with my life, and how do I respond to what we see in God's Word? That's where we're going to get. We're going to get to. But before we get there, I want to make a couple of observations under this general heading that says what we see in Acts 22 and 23 is very simply to say our world is complex. To reduce ideologies to, to 140 characters is not fair. To reduce ways of life to brief snippets and sound bites truncates everything we hold to be dear and true. But what we see in Acts 22 and 23, this first thing, that the, the observations I want to make are under this heading to say that the world is a complex place, and let's not try to oversimplify it. A couple of observations. The first thing that we see about in this first century world, the world in which Paul lived and traveled and proclaimed the message of Jesus, this initial, the world of the first century, it was a political world. It was a world of governing, of decision-making, of influence, and of power. Politics were a part of every part of life. We can think of it, we can think of politics even in our own day and age as something that can be positive when we think about progress and justice and freedom and giving a voice to the voiceless. But my hunch is, not reading any of your minds, but my hunch is for many of us, politics is going to carry a negative connotation. One of manipulation, one of deceit, one of cutting corners, one of nepotism, one of cronyism, one of getting my benefit for my good and you know, ahead of everybody else in my life. But both the positive and the negative were part of the world in which Paul lived. It's what we see throughout this passage. When in, in the first part, in, in, in verses 22 through tw or 25 through 29 of chapter 22, when Paul speaks about his own citizenship, but where he belongs politically, he's making a, he's making a political statement. As is the tribune, who is a Roman officer, a, a former soldier in charge of about a thousand men. When he talks about his citizenship and he says, I paid a price for it, he's making a political statement of the negative sense. Because it wasn't like that there was, uh, there was a pay scale for what it cost you to get your citizenship after so many years. What he's referring to here is he had to pay somebody to get his citizenship. That's called a bribe. 
He had to sneak his way in. He took a shortcut. But even in the second part, in chapter 23, as Paul is addressing the religious leaders of his day, he's making political statements there. We live in a political world. We live in a world where decisions need to be made. We live in a world where influence matters, where power matters. For positive and for negative, for good and for ill, we live in a political world. But the second brief observation I want to make from the passage is simply this. Paul's world, in our world, is pluralistic. What I mean by that is simply this. We live in a world, and Paul lived in a world, and ministered in a world, of competing ideas as to what was true, what was right, and what was good. It wasn't like we can look back at earlier times and say life was much simpler then because everybody got along and everybody agreed and there was basically one way to see the world. That's never been the case. It's what we see as, as this passage unfolds. Think about, think about it from the people who are mentioned, the groups of people who are mentioned. We hear about the Tribune and the Centurions. As I said, the Tribune was a, was a former soldier, now put in charge of about 100, 100 soldiers. He worked for the Roman government, the government that had occupied this land for close to 100 years. The government that ruled by force and valued peace almost to the point at all costs. Because one of the things that we see over and over again in the New Testament, as the gospel goes forth and things get unsettled, it's the government that gets unsettled and they send in the soldiers to bring peace. We know from history that, that the Roman government, depending on who was in the throne, had varying degrees of tolerance for other religious perspectives. But as time went on, one of the things that we also saw was that they tolerated to an extent as long as you still saw Caesar, the king, as the divine son of God, as the one who would be divine when he died. And so as long as you worshipped him and paid tribute to him, many, many times they were okay with whatever else you believed. That's a competing idea with what other people believe, just so you know. We also see mentioned the Sadducees. They were a Jewish group. They were connected to the wealthy, powerful, priestly families. They were kind of the aristocracy of the first century world. They were those who had a very strict understanding of the first five books of the Old Testament to the point their understanding was so strict, in fact, that they held the first five books above the rest. They held to the written word above all else. But interestingly, this group of Jews who held to the word of God were also open to working with Rome as long as it suited their purposes. They were the ones in power. They were the decision makers. They held a relative autonomy as long as they kept the peace with Rome to how, they, how their decisions were made and what they declared to be the case. But the other group, the group maybe we may be more familiar with, it's also mentioned in this passage, is the Pharisees. They were the lay leaders, which means they weren't priests. They weren't professional pastors or ministers or, or prophets. But they were people who were, would have been educated in the law of God. Their, their mantra, if you will, was law and tradition. They too held to the law of God, but they also held to their own traditions and held them as, as, as equally important. And so in a funny way, the Pharisees were both progressive and fundamentalist at the same time, if you can imagine that. The Sadducees, the, the strictly conservative people, saw them as, as progressive because they had something more than the written word of God. And yet, by modern-day standards, many of us, if you've been around the church for a while, you might use the term fundamentalist because their pride and joy in life was that they were separated from everybody else. I tell you all this because, again, what I want you to see, the first century setting in which we find ourselves in this story, 
is not some monolithic one way of doing things and Paul was against everybody all at once because he had this new message about Jesus. But rather it was a world of competing ideas and thoughts and ideologies of what is right and of what is wrong. Even Judaism in the first century was not sort of one kind of one way of thinking and one way of believing. Even in the, among the Sadducees and among the Pharisees, these two main parties, there were factions and there were groups and different ways of seeing the world. There was not one Jewish way. We live in a political world and we live in a pluralistic world, which means we live in a world like the first century that was charged for conflict. Look back at verse 23 as, as what happens as the people respond to Paul. In verse 23, it says they were shouting and they were throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air. The scene that you, you probably doesn't take too much to imagine, but the mob is getting excited to do something. They paused when the soldiers came in, but Paul began to speak again, and now they're riled up even more. You can imagine them trying to yell their perspective, yell hate, yell get rid of him, away with him, they yelled. They're taking off their outer cloaks. You can imagine getting ready for a fight, getting ready for something to happen. They were throwing dust in the air out of frustration. And as the, as the mob mentality rose... As the passage progressed into verse 24, the tribunes thought his only recourse was to get out the whips, to flog this man who's causing this trouble. He had previously tried to ask what he was speaking about and couldn't get a straight answer. And so the Roman way was to tie him up and begin to beat him, even into inches of his life, until he talked. That was simply what was done. It was part of the pattern. It was a brutal world. And even, even in the religious setting in the first part of verse 23, the high, the high priest's angry response to Paul is, hit him! Punch this man who has just spoken out of turn. It's a world of conflict. It's a world even of violence and brutality. Beloved, this is also the world in which we live. In a light-hearted comparison and an easy way to think about it, if you've ever watched any sort of reality television, you know that this is the case. If you've ever worked in the nursery, you know that we live in a, we live in a political world. Because any time you have more than one person pursuing some end, you have politics and you have competing ideas. And I'm not saying our children are the root of all evil by any stretch of the imagination, but what I am saying is if you've ever worked in the nursery and you've seen a kid go after a puzzle, and you see another kid see the puzzle, you know what happens. Some of it try to take it by force, and others will go ask the nursery worker for permission to take the puzzle away from the child. They'll appeal to, they'll appeal to authority. And if that doesn't work, they'll go ask the other nursery worker, just like they often do with mom and dad. It's not by mistake that Aristotle, over 2,000 years ago, wrote that man is a political animal, or else he lives all by himself. As soon as we enter into community, as soon as we live in, in one place together pursuing some end, politics are involved and pluralism involved. Beloved, this is our world. And, and the, first, the next thing I want to say is simply this. Let's not be surprised. Let's not be surprised by the time and energy and money that gets put into elections. It feels astronomical and unjust. And we could probably make a pretty fair case that it is that way. But let's not be surprised when our world dumps what it dumps into the political contests that we see before us. Because a lot is at stake. Because it's power, it's money, and it's influence. But at the same time, in the workplace, in the classroom, let's not be surprised by backstabbing, by gossip,
by who gets promoted and who doesn't, by who gets the acknowledgement and who doesn't. It's not all bad and it's not all, all immoral. It's navigating relational dynamics in the places in which we live. Maybe even you may feel the, the push of politics even in your neighborhood settings. What I want to say to us is let's not be surprised when we see it. The other thing I want to say is let's not be surprised when we disagree. Let's not be surprised when our neighbor sees the world very differently from the way we see the world. It's part of living in a place where it is not just me that exists. Even in a church this size, we, where we have probably strong agreement about most important things in this world, there is still disagreement, and it's not bad. There's freedom to, to, to live differently from one another. It's how God made us. But let's not be surprised by neighbors, co-workers, and even family members who may disagree with us when struggle comes. So looking at the passage, what do we do? If our world is complex, if it's political and if it's pluralistic and charged for conflict, what do we do? Well, while our approach must be careful, my simple charge to you this morning in, a, in the midst of a complex world is to engage. Engage with the people around you, engage in the world in which you live. Look back again at the passage and see how Paul does this. Notice what happens beginning in verse 25. It says that they had stretched him out for the whips. And again, this was not a spanking. This was brutal. His flesh would have been ripped off his body as a result of this. The intention was to, to only partially come to answers to questions that are asked. Because the intention really is to punish. That's what this was designed for. It's what it was made for. And oftentimes, those who were beaten and flogged in this way did not survive. But notice what Paul does as we keep reading. He turns to the centurion who is standing by and he says, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? As I said, Paul is making a political statement. You see, Roman citizenship was prestigious. It meant status. And even more than that, it meant protection for situations just like this. That he had not been condemned and they had no right to do this. In fact, as I read even this morning, that as tradition holds, that Paul was beheaded at the end of his life by Rome. Beheading was the most gentle, if you will, the most peaceful way to kill someone. It was not as brutal as, say, crucifixion, the way Peter, who was not a Roman citizen, was put to death. It meant standing for him. It meant protection for those who bore that identity. And even previously in the book of Acts, we've seen Paul not appeal to this, but here... Paul appeals to the politics of his day to say, is this right for you to do this? And by what, as the passage unfolds, we realize that Paul said the magic words. He said the right thing. Because everybody in that room, the soldiers, every one of the soldiers knew what was at stake. And what was at stake was no longer Paul's life, but their own. They knew what was at stake. Paul's response was to appeal to politics. Notice also how Paul makes a challenge based on the truth in the second part. Now, in, in chapter 23, again, as I said, you have two competing parties. And the main issue that Paul himself brings up is the issue of the resurrection, which the Sadducees did not hold to. That's how conservative they were, because they couldn't find it in the first five books of their Bible, and so they said it must not be true. We see this hinted at in the Gospels as well. But here, Paul's, Paul jumps to the political appeal to, to stir things up in, in the midst of this chaos. And to say, I'm here for the resurrection. 
And what happens is the attention immediately shifts from him to one another and they begin to fight. And the things get heated again. But there's something else that happens as this passage unfolds. Because even as Paul is making his political appeal, Paul is not letting go of his convictions. Paul is still standing for truth. He makes a challenge to his hearers based on truth. Notice how the scene unfolds. In in verse 1 of 23, he actually takes the initiative in this setting. He says, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Paul has already established in the public setting that he has lived as a faithful Jew his entire life. And that when Jesus entered his life, Jesus completed his Judaism. Because all that Paul held to, seen rightly, points, points all of us to Jesus and the truth of what he accomplished. Paul says, I don't stand condemned because I live my life in good conscience. But what that gets him is it gets him a beating across the face. He's rebuked, and yet as we keep reading in verses 2 through 4, he stands firm. In fact, in verse 3, he says to the one in charge, he says, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. This is language of hypocrisy. To say, you know that drywall in your garage that has the water damage, that when you're getting ready to sell your house, the temptation is simply to paint over it so it looks really fresh and new, and you can't see the water damage, but you know that inside it's rotting away. That's what Paul is calling this guy. He's the high priest. He stands up based on truth. And the response you get is those standing by is, would you really revile God's high priest? Paul, you just spoke against the most important man in all of Judaism. And Paul offers somewhat of an apology in verse 5. He says, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Paul is being subtle here. But what he's saying to those present is this. There's a sense of irony in his words, and maybe even sarcasm to say, I'm sorry, I didn't know the one who would pollute justice the way that justice is being polluted here. I didn't think that he would be the one who was the high priest. But history tells us, in fact, that Ananias was a brutal man, someone of a despot and dictator always trying to strive for his own ways. He was killed, um, he was actually killed in the, not long after this by a, a bunch of Jewish marauders because he was seen as too cozied up to Rome. He was a man who's striving to get his own way. Even in his apology, Paul is, Paul is acknowledging the politics in the room, and he's holding on to truth. And then he drives the wedge between the two parties. I want, to, I want you to hear me this morning. What Paul does is he appeals to politics and he makes a stand based on truth. What Paul is doing is he's engaging in the life in which, he's, which he has before. He's engaging in the world around him based on what is in front of him. He knows exactly what he's doing. He knows the people in each setting and he responds accordingly. After I learned to drive on my parents' full-size van, my parents worked out a deal with my older brother and my oldest brother that my first car would be his 1977 bright orange Toyota Celica. The problem with the Celica from where I stood, which is an awesome car and I loved it to this day, even though I had rusted out and a hole in the bottom and all those other problems with it. The basic problem with it was though that it was a five-speed manual transmission. And I was 16, 17, just learned how to drive and was getting comfortable in in an automatic. So my brothers proceeded to teach me how to drive as five-speed. And the thing about a five-speed that's different from an automatic, and and I'm I'm gonna be really simplistic here because I'm really simplistic, 
But the automatic, you put it into drive, and that actually means it's going to go forward on its own power. And you control it with the brake. A five-speed manual doesn't work that way. A five-speed manual, when it's in neutral or when, when the clutch is engaged, the engine is running, you can hear the engine running, you can even rev the engine, and you're not going anywhere. And what my brother proceeded to teach me was that, especially when you're on a hill, you're not only not going forward, but if the clutch is engaged or you're in neutral, you're going to start to roll backwards. And you know what happens when you're, when you're in traffic and you start to roll backwards? The car behind you is going to let you know that you're rolling backwards. That's the reality of engaging with life. What I look, try to look it up to try to understand how this works. And the basic way, the way the clutch works is that you have the flywheel coming from the engine. And sorry if you guys know that this is wrong, but this is the basic, simple to my understanding. You have the flywheel that's connected to the engine that's always running. And you have this, the clutch plate that when it touches the flywheel, there's friction that's, that's created because of the substances on the flywheel. And that's what makes the gearbox go and that was, that's what makes your car go forward. But when you push the clutch in to shift gears, that comes off and the car isn't moving. What I'm telling you is we need to be engaged with the world in which we live. Because oftentimes the temptation is to, as Christians is to sit in neutral. Is to sit in neutral and to live in protective kind of enclaves, if you will. To say we've got to protect ourselves and I'm not often sure what that even means and what that often looks like. But it seems like the challenge of the text, based on what we see Paul doing and the way we see Paul living, and even in the rest of Scripture, is that we're called to engage. To not sit in neutral. To not let us simply roll backwards down the hill. But we're called to actually move forward. This is, seems to be consistent with the rest of the Scripture. Now, now, hear me say, Scripture does not say do any of this blindly. As if to say the government is always right, or the, the people in power in your office workplace, or the people in power at the university are always right. That is not the stance of Scripture. But Scripture does say, pray for those in authority over you. It does say, submit to your authorities. People who wrote those words were killed for, for the, that kind of stance, and yet it says that in the Bible. Appeal to politics and challenge with the truth. I'm not saying get involved in shady dealing, but I'm, what I am calling you to is to embrace the power that God has given to us as creatures made in His image, called to exercise His power in the world in which we live. Learn to wield it humbly. For some of you, that's going to mean get involved in the political process. Find a place of influence. For others of us, that's going to mean volunteer for something in your workplace that would put you in a place of influence. Not to manipulate, not to cheat, not to steal, not to put others down, but simply to be a place of effective influence in the place that God has called you to live. Some of that may mean some of you need to serve on your homeowners associations if you have something like that. But in the most simple task, what I'm calling us to is to get involved with the people in our lives. When I'm talking about appealing to politics, on the most basic level, that's what I'm calling you, to, calling all of us to do, to be aware of the people around us and to be engaged with them in their lives. But at the same time, embrace the truth of the gospel. Paul talks about the resurrection and the hope. Cling to that. Let that shape your engagement with the world in which you live. We don't have to fear everything about the world in which we live. We need to live cautiously and carefully and patiently. Absolutely. I'm not calling you to sacrifice your convictions. I'm not saying that every truth that, that is claimed to be true is true. Absolutely not. 
What I am saying is clinging to the resurrection and the hope of the gospel. The truth that we have in Jesus, the truth that our hope is secure and is unfading and will not change and will endure forever is a place for us to engage with the world and with the world around us. Even in the politics of the world in which we live. What it comes down to is the world is complex and Jesus calls us to engage. Yesterday, as the rain, we finally had a break in the rain. I was mowing our front yard and I was helping my eight-year-old son learn how to mow the yard. He's eight, he wants to learn, he gives it his all, but he's still learning. As we walked up and down the yard, I realized that the goal of this process is for my son to do this by himself, for me to be able to sit inside and say, hey, doesn't the lawn need mowing? Just like my dad did with me. That's the goal of the process. But for right now, the process looks like this. He's getting a hang of it, but he needs me to tell him, don't put your hand underneath the, underneath the mower deck, ever. Don't put your toes underneath the mower deck. He needs help when we turn the mower on a hill because he's just not strong enough to push the mower up a hill. It's not a self-propelled mower. And he needs help because our yard at places is uneven and the mower will get stuck and the bumps are hard and tricky. So he needs me to walk with him most of the time to help push along when he needs my help. But the goal of this is my son's independence for him to do this by himself. Where the passage ends is to tell us that this is absolutely not how Jesus works. When I talk about engaging with the world in which we live and the complex world in which we live, Jesus' goal for us is not independence from him. Look again at verse 11. This is the following night. Paul is still in custody. It says that the Lord, which by that we understand that to mean Jesus himself, stood by Paul and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Jesus is saying, we're not done, and I'm still here. You see, at the beginning of the book of Acts, Jesus says to his disciples that they will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and all Samaria and even to the end of the earth. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The Holy Spirit here is the presence of Jesus in an ongoing way in the life of his people. Jesus is not saying, I'm going to teach you for a while and then I'm gone. Good luck. Have fun. Jesus is saying, I will always be with you. At the end of Matthew, he says, I will be with you even to the end of the age. Even to death, I will not be separated from you because I'm sending you my spirit. And that's what he does at the beginning of the book of Acts. And the book of Acts is the unfolding of the work of this spirit through the people of God to do this work. But interestingly, in chapter 19 of Acts, we read this, that after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. Chapter 20, he says to the the Ephesian elders, we we saw this a few weeks ago, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit. Paul's message is is my life has a trajectory because of the work of the Spirit of God in me. That I'm constrained to go to Jerusalem. He's warned multiple times not to go to Jerusalem because they fear that he will face exactly what he faces when he gets there. And yet he says, I am constrained to go there. The constraining is that Jesus is with him. And Jesus shows up at the very end of this passage to say, we're not done, Paul. I'm going to take you to Rome. Because as the message went out that they will be as witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and even to the ends of the earth, Jesus is saying, that's the view I have. I have the whole world in view. 
so that 2,000 years later, we can sit thousands of miles away from Jerusalem and read the story about Jerusalem in a different language because Jesus is present in his world even to the ends of the age. This is the confidence of the gospel. This is the hope of the gospel. Our world is complex. It's political. It's pluralistic. And it's full of conflict. And in the midst of such a world, Jesus calls all of his people to engage with that world through the political dynamics that are at work and in the truth of the gospel that is also at work. Beloved, Jesus is present with us. And he is at work. Let's pray. Father in heaven, by your grace, we are here. By our grace, many of us have stories of changed lives, of lives where you have confronted our arrogance, our self-sufficiency, our dependence upon substance, our dependence upon pleasure. And you are confronting those things even in our lives today. We are changed people because the gospel is true, because there is a resurrection, because there is hope. Would you continue to shape our lives through such hope even today? In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.